Father in heaven, we praise you as not only our creator, but our redeemer. And in Christ, you have uh, not withheld your greatest treasure, giving him uh, not only to become a man, to live as one of us, the perfect new Adam, uh, the first fruits of a new humanity, but also to give himself as a spotless lamb, as a sacrifice for our sins, and to raise him again on the third day to new life, and to unite us to him by your spirit, so that through faith, we can have all the benefits that he purchased for us, and we can have all his righteousness as our own, and we can be with you forever in reconciled uh, fellowship. We thank you for the just the gift of the gospel, and also not only having this gift individually, but sharing it as a people together, being united not only to Jesus by the Spirit, but to one another. Thank you for the church, that, who we get to be in Christ and that we get to give expression to that by gathering today. We, we don't want to take for granted what a gift it is, that we all, we're all just able to come together and worship you today. We pray that um, today as we look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we would think carefully and biblically. You would give me clarity and faithfulness in my proclamation and give all of us attentiveness and humility to learn from you so that you would shape our lives more into the image of Christ and that you would cause us to live for you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this series, we are studying the Holy Spirit um, as the Lord and life giver. And we've heard that this language comes from the old uh, 4th century Niceno-Constantinopolitan creed, uh, which says, among other things about the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. And I put that language in your handout with some scripture references. Each of those claims basically comes right out of scripture. And we've looked at how the Holy Spirit is the Lord. He is a divine person who shares the same nature as the Father and the Son and proceeds eternally from them. Um, Meaning his personhood is derived from the Father and the Son, but his deity, of course, is eternal. It's it's self-existent. And then we've looked at how he's the life giver, uh, his mode of operation within the divine works, the indivisible divine works. It's not like the spirit does his own projects, his own things. The Trinity is always working together with one will. But in those divine works, the spirit's mode of operation is, what is it? What did we say? It's sort of like, what's the spirit, the spirit's role in all that God is doing? Perfecting, yes, which is another way of kind of saying Life-giving, we said. So perfecting and life-giving is sort of a lumped category, which is why we say the giver of life. Jesus says in John 6, it is the spirit who gives life. And we saw that's not just an isolated statement from Jesus. That goes all the way back to creation. Genesis 1 verse 2. Um, So we have seen, what what are some specific life-giving operations we've seen from the spirit so far? Creation, yeah, that was huge. Creation and then providence, which is kind of the ongoing care of what God created, the ongoing governance and provision for God's world. What else? What about last week? Oh, boy. It's like, that was a whole week ago. (laughs) Yeah? Breathing out the word of God. God. Exactly. Well said. So revelation of God's word, the spirit is the life giver as the breath uh, of God that carries the God-breathed word to us. Um, and so today we're focusing on the, the Holy Spirit's life-giving operation in indwelling 
the operation of indwelling. God's work of dwelling among his people. We could say that the Holy Spirit is the tip of the spear, so to speak, in this triune work of dwelling, God dwelling with his people. What does, and you've probably heard of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. You've probably heard of that concept, or you, you know, that's a familiar concept that we use when we're talking about the Holy Spirit. But what does that mean? We're going to learn a little bit more about that. What does it mean for the Holy Spirit to dwell in us? And in future lessons, we're going to look a little bit more at the operations associated with his first arrival, which is conversion. Um, how we go from not being not believers in Christ to being believers and all that happens when we come to Christ in conversion, all that the Spirit's doing. That'll be next week. And then the following lesson will be the ongoing operations in his, his presence with us in sanctification and equipping us for service, uh, both as individuals and as a church. So we're going to look more at like what is the Spirit doing when he's here in future weeks. But today it's more just what does it mean for the Spirit to be here? if that makes sense, kind of just his very presence. What does that mean? Um, So we're going to start by just looking at sort of the concept of indwelling in general before we kind of walk through the biblical story and look at how does it look, where where do we see the spirit indwelling through this story of the Bible? Does that that make sense? Any questions or thoughts about what we've said so far, where we're going? Okay. Let's talk about indwelling, what it means. Um... The first thing to talk about is, uh, what, is it, what does it even mean for the Lord to indwell someone? As we think about this, the Holy Spirit, or the Lord, just in general, God, indwelling, living in, what are some theological maybe questions that come up or concerns or clarifications that might be needed as we, as we use that kind of terminology? Enlightenment, so you're talking about knowledge knowledge would be important? Okay, so it's going to have something to do with our knowledge. We talked about it last week, too. Yeah, what are some things that you go, oh, what does it maybe we say, what does it not mean, or what do we need to clarify? Annalie, did you have a thought? Just the omnipresence of God and the indwelling of each individual. Yeah, so that's a really good point. Omnipresence. So we have, on the one hand, we have to kind of relate it with this issue of isn't God everywhere? Isn't the, doesn't the Bible teach that God is? That's what omnipresence means. So we, as we think about the idea of God dwelling somewhere, we have to kind of distinguish, well, in what sense, right? Because isn't God everywhere? Um, there, there's also another thing we have to think about, which is God is not embodied. He's not a phys- he doesn't have a physical body. So he's, he's spirit. He's unconstrained in terms of physical location. So we don't, we can't, you, again, we have this like, you have a house you live in. You, you occupy physical space in the material realm and you have this space. It's not that, right? Um, but also, we have to say, well, how is it different than his omnipresence? And that is, appreciate you saying that, Annalie, that brings us to kind of this distinction we need to make. Two kinds of the Lord's presence. One, we could call his everywhere, all the time presence. That's his omnipresence. The Latin omni just means all. Um, would someone read Psalm 139 verses 7 to 8, and someone else be ready for Psalm 104 verses 29 to 30? So who who would grab uh, Psalm one thirty nine seven eight for us? Yeah, Josh, thanks. What about one oh four verses tw- okay Tom, twenty nine to thirty. And go for it when you get there, Josh. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold you are there. If I lift up the wing lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of it's all right. It's, it's, it's all good. It keeps going. It's a great song. But um, 
Where is the Holy Spirit? Where is the Spirit of God? The point that, that David is making is, everywhere I go, there's the Spirit of God. There's the presence of God. It's a good, that's a good text for the deity of the Holy Spirit. There, I, there you are. Everywhere I go, there you are. There's no way I can get closer. There's no way I can get farther. And two weeks ago, we heard about providence, which is God's providing and governing of his natural world. And so that's another way that kind of fits with this omnipresence. Everywhere you go, everywhere you look, every little corner of creation, if you can get there and look, you can see the Holy Spirit is giving life. He is working, he's providing, he's guiding. So what's this that we saw out of Psalm? Uh, Tom, would you read 104 verses 29 to 30? When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Yeah, and of course they are the creatures in the world, the, the natural world. So there is the spirit giving life, withdrawing life, and governing by providence everywhere. So, um, but in contrast to that omnipresence, there's another kind of divine presence that we could call God's special or covenantal presence. Um, and that is what David, if, if um, would someone actually be ready with Psalm, 1, Psalm 51, verses 10 and 11? Would someone read Psalm 51, 10 and 11? This is what David is, yeah, Wilson, thanks. David is praying he would not lose, that the Lord would not remove from him. As This is one of his prayers of confession. It's a penitential psalm. And so he's confessing his grievous sin, and, and this is what he prays. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Thank you. So when he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me, what is David praying against? What does he not want to have happen? Like, put it in different terms. Maybe losing his salvation would be a way of... So, so the presence of the Spirit would maybe just be kind of coextensive with being saved. Repent. So... So that he wouldn't. So he's repenting. Are you saying he is repenting for sure? That's that's kind of the the speech act that he's performing by this prayer. What uh, what if he said, David? What do you mean lose the, remove your Holy Spirit? What do you mean by that? What are you afraid of? Are you, is he talking like providence? Is he thinking like Psalm one hundred four? Like don't remove the breath of life, so I die. My physical body. Is that what he's praying? No, he's not praying about the providential omnipresence of the Holy Spirit. He's praying about something more, and we haven't, I'm kind of asking for the answer we haven't looked at yet together. But you can tell in the context, he's asking for something more special to not be lost. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Patty, and then I think Anna, yeah. I don't, think, I don't think he wants to lose the communion with God. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, communion with God. That's part of what he's talking about, for sure, yeah. Anna. The following verse yeah, so it's associated with, the, like kind of Matt said, there's some connection with the experience of salvation. Yeah. Like the humanist, the closeness of God? Yeah, closeness with God. Yeah, that's all part of it. Yeah, uh, Emily? What about just the fact that it's David and the Spirit dwells on him? Like, does that mean that he's praying that God would remove him? Yeah, where we're going. Yeah, so David, David is very much praying as the anointed king. To say that, don't remove your Holy Spirit from me. That's in the Old Covenant era. That's that's very important of who's saying it. It's David. We'll get there. That's a very good, a good, good point. One more comment. Yeah, Anna. Yeah. Thought, thought come to my mind. Could he be thinking about when um, the Lord withdrew His Spirit from Saul? Yes, you're anticipating where I'm going very well. Yeah. So there is a precedent of the Holy Spirit leaving somebody. 
um, in in this old covenant economy. Exactly. So let's. Uh, so, but the, the point at this point is that this isn't just omnipresence, right? This is something more special. This is something uh, a, a unique covenantal presence of the Lord. And um, let's talk then about what this the implications with the Trinity. Indwelling in the Trinity. Among the persons of the Godhead, we could say simply, the Holy Spirit is the indweller. But, of course, we've learned about the undivided works of the Trinity. All the external works of the Trinity are undivided, which means to say the Holy Spirit is the indweller isn't the whole story. As we'll see, for the Holy Spirit to indwell somebody really involves the whole triune God working together, but there's a special way that that indwelling terminates, we could say, on the Holy Spirit. And again, I kind of use the metaphor of he's the tip of the spear, the, the spear so to speak. Like, like he's the person in most immediate contact in indwelling, but he's always in union with the, the Father and the Son. Um, one theologian writes like this, writes, puts it like this. <laughs> he writes like this. He, he specifically writes this. The three occupy the same infinite divine space in indissoluble union with no infringement on the distinctness of any. So there, the Father remains the Father and doesn't become the Son and so on, but yet they're always indissoluble. They're, they're together. They can't be dissolved apart. They can't be separate. It's like an, another way of saying what we've been saying. They always work together, and indwelling is one of those divine works. They can't be divided. So um, for the Holy Spirit to move in, as we'll see, means for the triune God to move in, so to speak. Um, and finally, let's talk a little bit about the connection between indwelling and the sanctuary of God. So the sanctuary would be the tabernacle in the beginning, and then after Solomon, the temple, uh, building the temple. Those two places occupy the same function. Um, what was the tabernacle or temple? Just in brief, like what is the point of that place? What is it? Meeting place with God. Well said. There's a sense in which God dwells there, again, in a special way. God fills heaven and earth. And when Solomon's dedicating the temple in 1 Kings 8, he says, like, well, you don't live here in this. It's like, you're, you fill heaven and earth. You're the sovereign Lord of all. But there is a special way in which his dwelling is there so that that's where you go to meet with God. Where on earth do you go to meet with God? This, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, or the temple. And so, actually, one of the best ways as we move through the Bible storyline to get our bearings of going, where is the Holy Spirit dwelling, is to ask, where is the temple? That's kind of the question we're going to ask every stage. Where is the temple? That's the place where God is dwelling with a special covenantal presence. And to kind of skip to the <laughs> skip to the like punchline, the, the, end, the end of the the whole story. First, can someone read First Corinthians three sixteen and seventeen? Was that you, Matt? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So this is a really interesting connection that Paul draws between the temple, the Holy Spirit, and God dwelling in you, y'all, plural. And so that's what he's saying is for, for the Holy Spirit to dwell in you is the same. Essentially, it's saying, do you not know that you are God's temple? What I mean by that is the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Those aren't two separate things he's saying. He's saying essentially what it means for you to be the temple is that the Holy Spirit dwells in you and makes you a holy people and so on. So that's what we're going to ask. At every stage, we're going to ask, where's the temple? That'll be a really helpful question to get our bearings with where, what's the Holy Spirit doing with regard to indwelling. So that's kind of our general sort of ideas about indwelling before we look through the biblical story. Are there any um, questions or comments about those things we've seen so far? Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit what? 
Saul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's fine. It's easy to confuse the S kings. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So if the Holy Spirit, and we'll get there, if the Holy Spirit left Saul, what does that mean about us? Could we lose the Holy Spirit? Does that have implications on the doctrine of eternal security? Very good question. We're going to deal with that. That is actually a very a very good, uh, that's a good question for the, the text of Scripture to kind of pressure us to ask. So that's, we are going to deal with that. I'll, I'll save it for when we kind of get there, but that, thank you. Be thinking about that question. Um, very good. Any others? Yeah, Annalie. I just want to clarify. Um, you said that um, you don't think that the Holy Spirit just dwells in us plural. Yeah. So does that mean it's not within the individual believer, but it's within the true worldwide church? Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't mean that. So yeah, that's a great question. Does saying the Holy Spirit indwells you plural mean it's only a plural collective thing and not me individually. No, it doesn't mean that. It's both. We are very quick, I think, to recognize the individual. Like, I have the Holy Spirit. We think of our salvation in very individual terms. And there's good reason for that. It does. It's an individual thing to come to faith. Everybody has, you know, it's a one-by-one thing. But the, the, the status as God's holy people that where the Spirit dwells is as much a corporate thing and it's not just a corporate thing by addition, like because we're, you know, 50 people that each have the Holy Spirit, therefore it's actually there's something collective too. We won't get into that distinction too much in this lesson. It'll be something that comes up later as we talk about the Holy Spirit in the church. But yeah, the answer is yes, it's both. It's, it's absolutely both. Let's talk then about the Old Covenant. Where is the Holy Spirit indwelling in the Old Covenant? And the first question to ask is the temple. Where is the temple? Well, in this era, the temple is, get ready for it, the temple. <laughs> of course, as I said, before Solomon builds the temple, it's the tabernacle, which is just the temporary tent version of that. How do we know the Holy Spirit? What's the connection between the Holy Spirit and the sanctuary? It's a little bit indirect, but I think if you track this idea of this heavenly cloud, there's some biblical, if you kind of collect all the biblical witness, the evidence that the, the Spirit is associated with this cloud that is leading the people in the wilderness. So what happens, uh, how do we know that God enters the sanctuary? So in Exodus, like the back half of Exodus, God's giving his law and he instructs Israel how to build the tabernacle and then they build it. And then at the very end of Exodus, would someone read Exodus 40 verses 34 and 35? Yeah, um, uh, Jeff Crane. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Thank you. So what are the what are the people seeing? So what the event here is God enters the sanctuary. God's glory, the special presence of the Lord enters the sanctuary. What are the people seeing? A cloud doing what? Settling on the temple. Cloud above. Um we could say overshadowing. Can we use that word? <laughs> you can remember hovering. <laughs> um, let's remember overshadowing. Let's keep a little tab on our, our mental browser on that one. Um, but the spirit, the, cl- the cloud, it doesn't say the Holy Spirit here, but we have the cloud, which clearly in the Exodus narrative represents the Lord leading the people, right? This cloud is how he leads them. It's how they know where's, 
Where does God want us to go? So the cloud comes and settles over the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord enters it and fills it. Okay, so the, this cloud has been leading them. What's interesting is Isaiah later interpreting the, the wilderness experience of Israel, and, and it seems to tie this function of leadership with, to the Holy Spirit in a way that kind of, it seems to imply that the cloud is in some way associated with the presence of the Spirit. So in Isaiah 63, I'm kind of skipping parts of verses 11 to 14. He says, where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who led them through the depths? That's the Red Sea crossing. Uh, like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. So you see, it's like God, by his Spirit, leading the people in the wilderness, giving them rest, giving them this kind of Sabbath rest. Um, by leading them through the dark valley of the Red Sea and back into kind of green pastures. And um, so it seems like it's, 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 it's all kind of indirect. It seems like maybe the, the, the cloud is associated with the Spirit's presence in the temple. Um, and if that's the case, what do we have here? In the Old Covenant, the temple is, what's the relationship of the people to the temple? Well, it's nearby. That's good. But it's outside of them, right? It's a place in their camp. They, the Lord is drawn near to his people. He's not within them. He's near them. He's with them. But they have to go and, and worship through the mediation of priests and so on at this sanctuary. Um, and he's there, and especially the theology of like what the temple means. If you read Solomon's prayer and the dedication of the temple building in 1 Kings 8, it's a really good for kind of, what does it mean? Like Randy, you said, this is where you meet with God. I think is what you said, the meeting place with God. He goes on about, like, if we pray, if we're in this bad situation and we turn toward this temple and pray, will you hear us? This idea of this is where we orient kind of the, the geographic space toward which we orient our seeking of the Lord. And he's there. The, the blessing is he's there in their camp, hearing their prayers, forgiving their sin by means of atonement, and uh, blessing them and leading and teaching them. So we ought not to overlook, like, this is an amazing blessing that the, the Lord is dwelling in the camp of these people, in their midst. Are there any questions or thoughts about, about that? Did you, David, it looked like you were maybe trying to change him. No, <laughs> sorry. Scratching your temple isn't. Sorry. So that's the temple. That's the answer. Where's the, where's the temple? And then let's look now, secondly, again in this Old Covenant. What about leaders, upon leaders? So during this era, the Lord gives his spirit to certain leaders. And this dwelling, to kind of Nathan's point... It's important to observe this dwelling is not permanent. We read about the, the David asking God not to remove his spirit from him. Is there any good reason biographically for David to be afraid of this? Uh, yeah, well, there's this crazy like sin of adultery and murder, yeah. But even the idea of the spirit leaving someone, someone mentioned earlier. Because of Saul. What actually had happened earlier is you see in First uh, King, we won't look there, but in First Samuel 16, 13, and 14, in consecutive verses, you know, so Samuel obeys the Lord and goes and finds David to anoint when Saul has just failed as a king and God's done with Saul as a king. So he says, okay, go anoint the one I choose. And this whole story of how he goes to Jesse's family, picks David, anoints David. The spirit of the Lord rushes upon, comes upon David. The next verse, the spirit is said to leave Saul. That's First. Samuel 16, verses 13 and 14. So Saul failed. Saul didn't obey the Lord. He was an unfaithful king, and so the Lord withdrew the presence of his spirit from Saul. 
So you, it's no wonder why David, after having committed arguably more grievous sin than Saul did uh, in, in this particular case, is going, uh-oh, am I going to lose the Holy Spirit as well? The, I, the difference, though, is he's praying like Psalm 51. <laughs> and uh, Saul, we don't really ever see any, any repentance or contrition. We just see more hardness. Um, so this is a non-permanent indwelling. Uh, as David's case illustrates. It seems to be an empowerment to fulfill a particular office in God's economy among his people. So David is the king. He's anointed uh, with oil, which is a symbolic thing, but then the Holy Spirit comes upon him for that office of the king. It takes a while before he is actually enthroned as the king, but he's anointed for the office of being a king. You hear about in Numbers 11.25, Moses has the Holy Spirit upon him to lead the people and to give God's law. Um, you see a, a, a big kind of cluster of Holy Spirit references in Judges where the Spirit will kind of rush upon certain judges. These are deliverer, ruler people. Of course, they're not judges. It's not a great word to think of like dudes in black robes ruling cases. It's more like chieftains or rulers. But the Spirit will rush upon these guys, Samson and others, for this work of deliverance. Micah the prophet, Micah 3.8, says, As for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord. So this work of prophesying and power to prophesy. I mean, that's just a really good way of encapsulating. Power to carry out a function in God's economy is essentially where you see the Spirit showing up with individuals in the Old Testament. Um, And this idea, too, of uh, the Spirit's presence as prophecy, prophecy as a marker of the Spirit's presence. Like you heard Micah say, um, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord, and he's a prophet. So he's like, so I'm going to talk as a prophet. That idea, that's another thing to like put a tab on in your mind, the idea of prophesying as a mark of the presence of the Spirit. That's going to be a theme we see. Um, so the indwelling of key leaders in the Old Covenant doesn't seem to be quite the same kind of indwelling. Like we said, it's not permanent. It's not, it's not what we'll later see in the New Covenant. It's not permanent. It's only for key individuals. And also, you know, some, some point people have pointed out that the terminology is a little different. You'll see upon, the Spirit coming upon language, but you don't really see within. I don't, I don't know if this is true in every case, but it doesn't seem like you see a lot of the Spirit within, coming within people, but upon. So it's, it's hard to say. Maybe that's just more of, that would be sort of corresponding to the fact that it's not a permanent indwelling. It's not, in some ways we just get hints. It's, it's, he's there, he's with them, it's really good, he's strengthening them, he's giving them divine power, but again, we're, we're, it's not quite what it will be. Yeah, Christina. I think that I'm still trying to like chew on the differentiation yeah. here because I certainly know that we could probably all come up with examples in this day and age of people, and we, we talk about it as the seeds, like the seeds that sprout up and yeah. they're away in the sun or whatever else, where it seems like there is that anointing, so to speak, mm-hmm. for and, and fruit along with that, and a, a true mm-hmm. desire, and then at some point or other, the sin... Yeah, yeah. We're all drawing people away or whatever mm-hmm. else it is. Um, of course, we can even think of leadership, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Like, um, people in roles of, of mm-hmm. in God's economy that uh, yeah. seem to have, almost seem to have that gifting or anything mm-hmm. there that um, then, you know, like over time, is, is there, like, how do we, since we see, his example of being temporal in some way mm-hmm, of that mm-hmm. in the Old Testament is there ways in which he is temporal even yeah. in um, our day and time. 
It's a great question. I mean, you're saying some of the, we see stuff in the church that kind of looks like this Old Testament thing of like, he was with Saul and he wasn't, right? Like we see some people that seem fruitful and then you hear about this kind of moral declines or these kind of, you know, like even in terms of error, theological error. And it's like, oh my goodness, where, where did this person go? We thought this person was so fruitful. Yeah, that can be tricky. One thing I would, I would say is um, the spirit, uh, yeah, there's a sense in which he's providentially always around causing things to, to happen. And, and there could be a providential sense in which he uses people beyond their, you know, even beyond where, what they're qualified for morally, or so to speak. Like, there could be ways he uses even a non-believer, potentially, to do some kind of spiritual good if they're, like, speak, teaching the word. You know, like, of course, that's not a good situation, but there are, this seems to have happened. There are people who have sat under pastors who turned out to, probably to not be converted at all but the Lord did use the word in their lives. So I would put that under providence. What you'll see in the New Testament is that the marker, where is the spirit giving life, is going to be much more moral and ethical than competence, skill. So the spirit does give competence and skill. We have spiritual gifts. But the real, you know, the fruit of the spirit are going to be indicators that the spirit is giving life, and those are all virtues. They're all character virtues. So I think that's an important observation of the special presence of the Holy Spirit is marked by a by a way of life. It's going to have these kind of signature aspect to it. Yeah. Yeah, Nathan. It's not always uh, ex- extraordinary, right? It's often in ordinary things, yeah. Right. And it doesn't, like, come on and, I don't know, give you a business or something. I don't mm-hmm. know, something like that. But it's the way you're describing it, it sounds like that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. no, good question. I mean, it is so, first of all, yes, God God in himself is not changing. So that's an important thing to say. His, his, his way of operating in it, toward his creation and toward his, his, in his, his salvation plan, that does change. That goes through certain stages of, of changes. And yeah, what I would say is there's a lot going on. In the, like we have these threads of we have providences happening throughout the Old Testament. So the spirit is causing plants to grow and you know all the ordinary stuff and that would include the human realm as well um but i think so we'd say there's this baseline of ordinariness the spirit is working Uh, and the temple would be in some ways kind of an ordinariness thing as well even though it's a special presence it's it's always there you're always going through these rituals we don't like that word (laughs) rituals of worship and and the lord's presence is there with atonement things like that but there are flashy spectacular things and i would say I would also not deny that even in any era of, of the, the history of God's working, that, that extraordinary, unusual things happen and that the Holy Spirit would never do that. So I should probably be careful and say, maybe I, I should say we, uh, we might too closely associate the Spirit with the extraordinary. 
And we need to maybe have a better awareness of the spirit working in the ordinary. And of course, extraordinary things always need discernment because it cannot be not the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is always, there's always could be extraordinary things that he does. I don't think that ever will change. But I think what we'll see is there's little drips of what was going to eventually become a torrent of, the, of God's presence among his people. And it's, it will always be better and more from what little beginnings start. It'll always be this increasing better and more. So it's not, I wouldn't say as much as a radical change as much as a, 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 little, a little trickle of a creek that, that grows into a, a river. I hope we'll see that as we go. Does that someone help answer your question? Yeah. No, it's, it's good stuff to wrestle with. And maybe we can interact more later if you have you know, more follow-up. It's a good question. Let's move on and talk about the last place you kind of you kind of see the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant. It's kind of a different category, but in, in, in future promise. So not only do you see the Spirit working and being there you know, with the sanctuary, being there with leaders, but you see him promised in prophecies. The Old Testament advances on in Israel's failure of the covenant becomes clearer and clearer. There will not be a restoration to an Edenic state. Like, we're not getting back, we're not getting back to where sin we fell from, right? Uh, this present state of affairs is not going to cut it. The, the Lord dwelling with his people in perfect uh, righteousness and holiness. So, the prophets start looking ahead toward a future hope of renewal by the Holy Spirit. And these future promises of the Spirit, we could look at kind of three major threads. The first is that it's messianic. It's a me- messianic. I have those three words. Those are the three threads I'm going to bring up. It's messianic. Isaiah, especially, he has these promises of a servant Messiah who will be clothed with the Holy Spirit and carry out a divine mission of deliverance. So Isaiah 42, 1. um, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And and this is is Christ. This is Messiah. Uh, Chapter 11 and chapter 62 also have really important spirit-related messianic prophecy. I think I preached on Isaiah 11 kind of recently, um, but, but uh, that's a rich thread in Isaiah, the, the Messiah having the spirit and being a servant. Yeah, uh, Jeff? Yeah, and you just read that. It says, upon him. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Like, upon him. For, it's for a servant. Almost, yeah. Uh, that he's doing, yeah. you know, just like, just like Saul or any other yeah, person yeah. that was raised up for a specific Yeah. Person. That's an interesting word, too, and I, and I, would, I would maybe say Often what's happening in prophecy is prior categories are appropriated to a future situation. Because I think we're going to see what the true state of the Spirit's presence with Jesus is going to be more profound than David and these other rulers. But it still uses sort of the vocabulary of past experience to project forward into a new development. That's a good observation, yeah. This stuff's complicated. Um, the, the second thread is the internal nature. And we're not going to read uh, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 in its entirety. But the Lord is promising his people the new covenant in terms of a new heart and the Holy Spirit within them. So he says, uh, I'll just pull out some highlights. Uh, I'll cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will, remember, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So there's a lot going on here, but essentially the law will go from being an external thing written on stone that clashes with the stoniness of men's hearts. When, when two stones hit each other, their sparks fly. It's not a good, <laughs> not a good connection, right? Um, to being an internal ministry of the law corresponding to a soft and fleshy heart. 
And all that is because of the spirit, a new spirit I will put within you. So there's that development that, that we were tracking the upon. This is a different. It's within, and it's a, so it's not, it, it, it changes the person, right? It's not just saying, I'll put my spirit in you, and you'll do better. <laughs> it's saying, I will give you a new heart. Like, there's this whole radical internal renovation of the human being, spiritually, by the, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, that will cause this person to interact differently with God's commandments, and so on. It'll solve the problem that, kind of the, the need of heart circumcision, like the Deuteronomy said, would, would would happen as we see the law failed, Israel failed the law over its history. Um, and then finally, the third thread is its widespread nature among the Lord's people. So in Joel 2, 28 and 29, Joel says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will, well, it's the Lord saying, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So, this remember, I, that's why I pointed out that there's there's a pattern in the Old Testament of prophecy as a marker of the Spirit's presence. We didn't talk about this, but when Saul, back in the beginning of Saul's story, when he is first being anointed as king, there was a moment in 1 Samuel 10, 11, I think 10, 10 or 10, 11, where... Um, the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul and he starts prophesying. You're like, oh, now, now we know this. Like, that's how we know the Spirit is on Saul is he just starts speaking for God. So that was, pro- prophecy was often, not always, but it was often sort of an index marker of like the Spirit is here. So that's how to interpret Joel's prophecy by saying everyone's going to prophesy, men, women, old, young, powerful, you know, higher or lower in social status, everyone will prophesy Again, using the currency of these Old Testament categories, that's a way of saying everyone will have the Holy Spirit. Um, that's, that's, that's the big development in Joel's prophecies. Everyone, the all flesh thing, everyone within the covenant community. So we're looking forward to a Messiah related to the Spirit, we're looking to the Spirit whose ministry would become more internal and would be more widespread among God's people. So that's why I say that what starts as a drip in the Old Covenant will start turning into more of a, a river and more of a torrent in the new, as we'll see. So any uh, reflection or questions on those things? Yeah, Josh. I had a comment and a question. Yeah. Uh, so the comment was, it seems like, you know, sometimes it feels like, oh, it was really different back then, mm-hmm. and it seems kind of random, like, why is it like that? But God is pretty forthright in saying, this is what I'm going to do, um, like mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. Like, but before you get the indwelling spirit, like, you have to have a new heart. Mm-hmm. Yet. And so mm-hmm. you have to wait till the cross, basically. Um, and, mm-hmm. and then the question was um, going to uh, let yeah. it on the leaders. Mm-hmm. Is do we have other than Saul? Are there other um, characters where it explicitly says like the spirit leaves the person? No, I don't know if there's. I don't know of any mention of spirit leaving someone. I do. I mean, I, it seems like his influence is. Wax and wane. Like some, like sometimes there's these, kind of to Nathan's point, there are moments where the spirit rushes upon um, Samson, what's his name, to do things that are very powerful. The spirit doesn't seem to be having much of a moral effect on Samson, right? So they're, they're um, yeah, so I would say there's maybe some implied coming and going. But this decisive abandonment, I don't think there's anything but anywhere but Saul where you see that. Yeah. Yeah, there's no mention. I don't think there's any mention of Solomon having the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. After David, 
Um, and I don't. I wouldn't say the spirit isn't on kings after that, but the the king that the the king's office becomes a messian or it becomes an anointed messianic office. But I don't know if there's any mention of kings after David having the Holy Spirit. It's a big theme in Samuel. Kings? That's a good question. I don't know if there's really any talk of the kings having the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I have a question. Um, it has to do with um, John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. He was um, going to be the, the voice of the Lord yeah. out in the wilderness. And he was, he was, um, he had the power, the, the spirit of Elijah, I think. Mm-hmm. So would, he, would that be the case where he would actually have the Holy Spirit in him? Or was it yeah, another? that's a good question. Did, would would the would John the Baptist be an indwelt by the Holy Spirit? I don't know if we have enough. I don't know. That's a good question. In in terms of broadly, John the Baptist would be considered kind of the very last prophet of the Old Testament era in a lot of ways. So I don't know. I haven't done a deep dive into all the like the Spirit and certainly the Spirit is working in John, even from the womb. It's interesting in Luke, but I don't know if there's any real clear you know. He's dwelling within as much. I would put him probably in the category of the prophets who the Spirit is working on through him, things like that. But let's move on and talk just to take a time about. Oh, Matt, do you have. I was going to say in Judges that the Lord left um, Samson. The Lord left Samson, yeah. yeah. So it doesn't say the Spirit, but it does seem pretty clear that the Spirit is the one who kind of rushes upon him, and so the Lord leaves. Yeah, that's, that's probably a pretty good other example. Yeah. Pretty, pretty, pretty uh, clear. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks, Matt. Let's talk about the incarnation of Christ. So once again, when Christ comes, as we get to the New Testament era, where is the temple? Well, of course, there's still a temple in Jerusalem. There's a building. But where's the temple really now? It's the body of Jesus. That's what John is very keen to communicate, where he says, in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that dwelt could be translated tabernacle. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, temple word, drawing on Old Testament imagery, and he also, later in chapter 2 of John, he describes his body as a temple. Destroy this body, and in three days I'll raise it up. No, no he doesn't say that. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And it says he was speaking about the temple of his body. So, in the coming of Christ, God's special covenantal presence is no longer located in the temple building. It's the human body of Jesus, where God is specially present on earth. And so, given that that's the case, it's important to note everything about Jesus coming in ministry happens by the Holy Spirit. There's a ton of Holy Spirit in Jesus' coming in the Gospels. It's amazing. One theologian writes, not only is the Holy Spirit the gift of the Son, as we'll see, but the incarnate Son is, first of all, the gift of the Spirit. Everything we see Jesus in his coming and his work, we can see the Holy Spirit is driving the whole, the whole thing. So, let's start with his conception, the virginal conception. Um, Luke 1, I'll read verses 31 and 35. This is the angel speaking to Mary. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The Holy Spirit will come upon him, and the power of the Most High will over... I'm sorry. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the angel is predicting that Jesus will be conceived by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. Now this is an event of new creation. What's miraculous about this? I mean, it's almost it's kind of obvious. Like, what's so miraculous about this? Does do virgins get pregnant every day? <laughs> no, no. It is a miracle that that life is beginning in a 
otherwise lifeless place. It's a work of new creation. We could almost say Mary's womb is like the formless and void creation before the Spirit's hovering in Genesis 1-2, bringing order, bringing life, filling it with, with life. And that's what the Spirit does. He comes upon, and this word overshadow in the Greek translation of Exodus 40, 35, remember we read that the cloud over the cloud settles upon? That's the word that's used there. It's only used a few times in the Old Testament. But we could say the cloud overshadowed the tabernacle, and when God, the glory of the Lord, came to fill it. And so the angel is saying, the Spirit will overshadow you in your womb. In a sense, there will be a new um, <coughs> filling, a new indwelling of the Spirit in in your womb with this creation of this new life so the the cloud hovered and remained above the sanctuary signaling the lord coming to indwell the tabernacle by the spirit and the same thing is happening inside mary um now this idea and i also i think we also we also tease the word hovering uh but yeah what does that remind us of we've kind of it's kind of come up with hovering is this can we say this is a hovering uh, this image, if you see the clouds settling over the tabernacle, you see this, the spirit will overshadow you, Mary. We're firing all these connections with what? Creation. Creation when the spirit is hovering, again, I just mentioned the new, in Genesis 1-2, the spirit's hovering over the unformed mass of creation to bring order and life. So, this life-giving, hovering presence of the spirit sparked the first order and life in God's original creation. And it's also... For that reason, we can't continue that. In the Exodus, what's the Lord doing? He's giving life. It's a new creation in the Exodus. Redemption is taking on the familiar shape of a new creation. And now all that baggage is being brought to bear onto the coming of Christ. It's a new Exodus. It's a new creation. This great work of redemption and renewal in God's world. All that happening in the body of Jesus. That's pretty epic. <laughs> I like to think, wow, there's a lot going on in the virgin uh, conception of Jesus. A lot theologically. It's not merely a miracle, but it's a miracle that shows theologically what is going on with the coming of Jesus. Um, the next place we see is the baptism of, of Jesus. And uh, this is the beginning of his ministry. And we remembered how in Isaiah 42, 1, there was a promise the Lord would send his servant that his soul delights in, and he would give him his spirit. Would someone be willing to read Mark 1, verses 10 and 11? Oh, yeah, Wilson. But when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am Thank you. So, this is, a, we could say, this is Jesus' anointing. Do you know that's what Christ means? It means anointed one. Christ and Messiah are just Greek and Hebrew derived terms for it. the anointed one. He is the great anointed one. These kings and prophets and priests had an oil anointing, but he is the great anointed one who surpasses all who came before. John 3.34 says that God gives him, his son, the spirit without measure. He gives his son the spirit without measure. So we see this ex excessive abundance of the spirit given uh, over against what came before with these key leaders in the Old Testament. And so this is the moment of anointing of Jesus by the Holy Spirit doesn't mean he didn't have the Holy Spirit before, but it just means there's a special fullness uh, relative to his ministry in particular. This is important. This key, he's about to be launched into his ministry. 
Uh, so the Lord is anointing him with the Spirit for his ministry in a special way to carry out his work of prophet, priest, and king. And if, um, again, it, and, you know, we've talked about inseparable operations is a fancy word way of saying all the works of the Trinity are undivided. So, wow, everyone shows up for the baptism, right? So Jesus is the one, the incarnate one, who actually goes in the water. But the, you see what? The Father declaring from heaven. You see the Spirit coming down. The Father giving the Spirit to him. You see, wow, the whole Trinity is involved in this baptism. And really, in, in the whole ministry that will flow from this anointing, from this moment. It's a Trinitarian work altogether. And then you have the ministry of Jesus. And all the Matthew, Mark, and Luke... All, it's very interesting, the connection, it goes straight from baptism out into the wilderness, and the Spirit leads Jesus out, out into the wilderness to do battle with Satan, with his temptations. Luke is especially clear that really even after that, when he returns, so if you look at Luke 4.17, he returns from the wilderness back into Galilee, it's the Spirit still driving him along, compelling him. So what we are to understand there is that really the whole rest of Jesus' ministry will be by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who has come upon him in his baptism is driving his ministry the whole. Uh, as one church father, Basel, wrote, the Spirit is Christ's inseparable companion during his earthly ministry. And uh, one other, I have a reference here in Mark three twenty-two to 30. That's that incident where Jesus is casting out demons and his opponents say, oh, you must be doing that by the power of, who do they say? Beelzebub, Satan. <laughs> and he says, no. That is actually, what is it? what are you doing by saying that? What does he call that? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Isn't that, why? Well, because it is actually by the Spirit that he's doing these things. So there's another clue, another, another data point of like everything, he's, especially his exorcisms of demons. This is the, the Spirit working in him. He's rolling back Satan's domain by the power of the Spirit. So he's with Jesus in his con- in conception, in his baptism, in his whole ministry. And finally, we come to the climax of his ministry, Calvary and the resurrection. And the Bible doesn't elaborate, but does point to the Spirit's role in both of those actions. So Hebrews 9.14 is very intriguing. It says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So he offered himself by the eternal Spirit. Wow. We don't have much more detail about what that means, but it's no surprise by this point. It's no surprise. Everything he did was by the power of the Spirit as He's God, but he's also a spirit-empowered man doing all these things in obedience. So, so we should say, well, of course he did it by the spirit. How else is he going to do it as a man? Um, then the resurrection. You have like Psalm 1, or sorry, Romans 1, 4. Paul writing that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So the, the spirit, in, and there's other references you see in your handout too. The spirit was the means of, God, of Christ's resurrection. So all the way from conception to ministry to death to life again, it's, it's Jesus' work is really the work also, at the same time, of the Holy Spirit. But the cool thing is that the Spirit's work in Jesus didn't end like a cul-de-sac. It's not like, well, that's the end, you have Jesus. But actually the next phase is Christ then ascending into heaven and pouring out the same Spirit on his people. Which, before we talk about Pentecost, I know we've, we're going kind of quickly through incarnation, but any... Questions or remarks, things to be clarified about Jesus and incarnation. Yeah. Just just a comment. I've always known about the first comment and the second comment, but with the information specifically you shared today, this is the first time I saw Jesus' ministry as a transition. A part of that story. From the first comment to the second comment. Yeah, yeah. And how 
the Holy Spirit and the Trinity is working in the Old Covenant, transitioning through Jesus' body. Yes, yes. Yes, that's appreciate you bringing that up. So we may be familiar with the old to the new, but it passes through the person of Jesus. That's why I think the question of where's the temple is really the key question. Where's the temple? Where's the temple? That's where God is dwelling in a special way. So that I appreciate you bringing that out. Yeah, yeah, Aaron. Along that line, I I had never thought about it either. Um, Jesus' baptism. It always seemed to me it was more like a like a public uh, mm-hmm. a way for them like to make an announcement. Yeah. Son. Yeah. It, it, I can see a different depth to it now that the Spirit. He was a man all that time. Mm-hmm. He always had the Spirit in him, but he was a man just living an ordinary life mm-hmm. until that moment. Yeah. And then that's when the Spirit. Came yeah. Like you said, yeah. like a special purpose, and that was the beginning of that public ministry. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot. I'm sure there's a lot going on simultaneously there, but yeah, I'm glad, glad that you drew that out. Yeah. So let's talk about Pentecost. Uh, the day of Pentecost is a crucial moment in this story of the Bible, but especially as we track where the Holy Spirit dwells. Um, this is the whole church receiving the promise of the Father, as Jesus says. Well, what happens at Pentecost? Jesus has ascended to heaven after his resurrection, and there he shares his special anointing with all who believe in him. Um, and we heard it from John 3. He gives a spirit without measure. Um, well, that, that, that God gives his son the spirit without measure. One, one author wrote, Jesus gives a spirit without measure because he first possesses the spirit without measure. So we have this Jesus who has the spirit in a way far exceeding any of the old covenant people, and that's the Jesus who shares his spirit with his people in the same overflowing and abundant way, fulfilling these prophecies. So the, the event happens in the first four verses of Acts 2, where the people are gathered, the, the disciples are gathered. Uh, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then everyone who's there for Pentecost, who's gathered for the feast, they hear these people speaking in their own foreign languages, and they marvel and say, what's going on? And then Peter preaches to explain what's going on and to call them to faith in Christ. And in that sermon, does anyone know what Old Testament prophet? He actually quotes a few Old Testament prophecies and, and refers to them. Is there one that we've looked at today that, that he quotes? Joel 2, 28 to 29, who said, All flesh, your sons and daughters, will prophesy... These, this is how we know that the last days is in the last days. So Peter's point is, now we know this is the last days. This is the end stage of God's plans in history. Is this, this is the age of the Spirit, when all have the Holy Spirit. And we know that because, in Peter's logic, because look, everyone's prophesying. That's the signal that this event... It's interesting that he, the way he uses Joel 2 is the, he's... He's taking this speaking in tongues, speaking in foreign languages, that's what it means, miraculously as the Spirit gives utterance. He's saying this is, this is a kind of prophecy. It's God, it's, it's inspired speech by the Holy Spirit that um, is signaling, again, in old, in old Covenant categories, this is a marker. Oh, the Holy Spirit is here. Again, like when Saul suddenly gets zapped by the Holy Spirit, <laughs> it is kind of like that. It's like, oh, there's the Holy Spirit and he's prophesying. It's almost like, it's almost like he's not. He's kind of a passive a, a character in that. So basically, um, this is a in in terms of the story up to this point in the Old Testament. This is a powerful indicator. The Spirit is here on all the people of God, all the disciples of Jesus. 
Um, and then you see that resonating throughout Acts. So like in 10, 44 to 48, there's that when Peter is preaching to Cornelius, the Gentile. And the same, there's a little Gentile Pentecost, right? Like the Spirit does the same thing in Cornelius' household. And that, if you read those verses, you can tell that's how they know the Spirit is here. They're like, wow, these guys are saved too. Because they're prophesying, like Joel said. They are speaking in tongues. So we know that, that the Lord has saved them, so we better baptize them. That's exactly the logic that Peter uses there in, in Acts 10, 44 to 48. So, again, this point, and we'll talk more about spiritual gifts later, but this outburst of foreign languages is a kind of spirit-inspired prophecy that proves tangibly that this, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on God's people. Um, so, what's the point of this Joel 2 thing being fulfilled? Sinclair Ferguson writes, In Christ, they, the people of God, have immediate personal knowledge of God. All, in this sense, are prophets as well as priests and kings. So there's a sense in which the, the privileged status of the few um, in the Old Covenant becomes the, the inheritance of all in the New Covenant. We all have the Spirit. There's this abundant outpouring. And in a sense, all become like those key people, the prophets, priests, and kings. We all have the Spirit now, like the Old Covenant community did not have. And then as you see in Acts the Spirit is the one who propels the, the mission of the gospel, uh, the, the, the missionary uh, enterprise of the church. Um, so Jesus said in Acts 1.8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that's the story of Acts. And you see in key moments the Spirit driving people, guiding people, sending people. Um, and I have references there like Acts 13.2, he sends Paul and Barnabas, etc., so this is part of his life-giving ministry. God is redeeming humanity uh, from all nations through the coming and cross of Christ. Those who believe are saved. And the Holy Spirit is launching this saving mission to the ends of the earth by spreading life over this barren world and perfecting the work of redemption. So that's how this, you know, the missionary enterprise in Acts is, again, it's life-giving work of the Spirit over, well, as far as the curse is found, over... Um, this is a sinful fallen world. So any real quick survey of Pentecost. And we're going to, again, talk more about the, the like tongues and prophecy later with gifts. But any, um, any comments or questions about that, these things? Well, that leads us to the ongoing life of the church. Uh, the present state of affairs will be brief here because... Again, this is really stuff we're going to expand on for the next few weeks of like, what's the Spirit doing now in this era of church history and in, in our in individual and church life? But um, the indwelling that began at Pentecost in the church is continuing. We are in the era of Pentecost in that sense. The Spirit is, is among us uh, as God's people, all flesh. All who are in the covenant have the Holy Spirit. Um, not all the signs of Pentecost continue, but the Spirit indwells us in the full new covenant sense promised by the prophets so for instance in ephesians 1 13 to 14 we hear about how the holy spirit seals us for the day of redemption you when you believe we're sealed with his with his holy spirit which is a a way of kind of keeping permanently until redemption is complete so we don't have we don't pray like david in psalm 51 we don't pray oh i've sinned so badly i hope the spirit doesn't leave me we don't have to pray that way the spirit and through him, the triune God has taken up permanent residence in all who believe in Jesus. We've looked a couple times already at John 14, a key from 17 to 23, key thing on indwelling. 
But Jesus says there in John 14, 17 to his disciples in the upper room, you know him, he's talking about the spirit of truth, and he says, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And I think what he means there is he dwells with you, meaning he dwells in me and I'm next to you. So he's with you in that I'm with you, but he will be in you. He will be directly, that's the Pentecost change, right? He'll be poured out into you directly. And then he says, um, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So he said, he will dwell in you. And then he essentially says, if, if you love me, keep my word. Essentially, if you're a disciple, if you're a true disciple, my father and I will move in too by means of the spirit. Why? Because there's this unity, this indivisible unity between Father, Son, and Spirit. One of them never moves in somewhere without the other two. But yet there's still a sense in which, in a particular way, the Holy Spirit is the indweller. But it's, it's, you could say Christ is dwelling within me. You could say the Father is dwelling within me because he's inseparable from the Spirit. And that is a permanent indwelling. You, I have references there in 2 Corinthians 1, 22 and 5, 5 about this, this imagery of a down payment. The spirit is a down payment of our future inheritance. What does a down payment do? It begins paying for the total, and it secures a place saying the rest is coming. And that's exactly what the spirit does. The spirit is kind of God's down payment of heaven on us. Like all the, all the gift of redemption, all of the, the inheritance of glory with Christ we have through the Holy Spirit. Um, and then as we talked about earlier, we have the, where's the temple? What's the answer now? We, we, we read 1 Corinthians 3. Where's the temple now? From now until the end of everything, where's the temple? The only temple. is the people of God. It's the church. That's the temple. That's where God's presence dwells. And uh, the triune God is dwelling in us through his spirit. And um, so what does it mean to have the Holy Spirit? We kind of asked that toward the beginning. What does it mean to have the Holy Spirit? Well, his indwelling brings the presence of the triune God into the believer, which in, in terms of the Gospel of John is eternal life. That's what it means to have the triune God dwelling in you in fellowship. It's eternal life. It starts now. It doesn't, it's not just mean you'll, it's not just a reference to what will happen in the future. It starts now. It's a foretaste of more inheritance to come in the future, a down, pay, a down payment of heaven. Um, it is the life of God invading our present existence. That's what it means to have the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and use this river terminology. It's a, it's, the, it's a bubbling brook that in eternity will just in, increase into a raging torrent of grace and glory and joy and love. Uh, that is what it means to have the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be in Christ. So um, where is the temple? In, the, in Old Covenant Israel, the temple was nearby and the Spirit was nearby which was a blessing. But, uh, you know, he came upon certain leaders and he led the people as a whole into a place of rest. But because of their sin, they showed they needed far more. And so we see in Jesus, the incarnate God, man conceived by the spirit, anointed beyond measure by the spirit to carry out his redeeming mission. And when he has accomplished redemption for us, he ascends to heaven and pours out the spirit on us, the spoils of his victory to anoint us with his anointing and pour out life into our hearts so that we can experience in ourselves the, the, the perfecting and life-giving work of the Spirit. So the next several weeks, we'll, we'll look more about what that work looks like among us. But I, I left some application questions to just think through on your own. 
uh, for, to just encourage further meditation. What does it mean to have the Holy Spirit within us? Why should that make us grateful? And then what obligations does it imply for us? Um, and uh, you'll, we'll, we'll deal with more of these things as we go in this series. But any, I'm kind of going fast toward the end to respect time. But we do have a few minutes, actually. Uh, so were there any questions, especially the last stuff that I was kind of jamming through quickly? <laughs> any questions or things that to expand on? Yeah, Wilson. Does it have to be towards the end? No, no, it could be anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, and I might have missed it when I was in the restroom earlier, but when you were talking about the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament among Old Covenant believers, do you have any thoughts or counsel how we should talk about the Holy Spirit's role in regenerating Old Covenant people? Yeah, great question. Sustaining their faith? Because he was mm-hmm. about that. So yeah, that's a really interesting theological question. Is what, the, what was the Spirit doing in individuals? So is it appropriate to say he regenerated individuals? And I'm borrowing categories we'll talk about later um, in terms of what he's doing now. But is it, is it appropriate to say he was indwelling every individual? We've kind of, I, I think we've kind of said no to that. He was not indwelling every individual. But did he regenerate? Well, what's interesting is you have to, you have to kind of connect the dots a little bit theologically, do some inferring. And we can't be totally dogmatic. But when, I, I think... To say he wasn't regenerating people creates a lot of theological problems because then you have to say, well, well, we know, like you're saying, Hebrews 11, there were people of faith in the Old Covenant era. There were people whose faith, by whose faith they were commended as righteous, like Abraham. People who were saved by the, they were saved by anticipation, essentially, of the, the cross of Christ. And they'll be in heaven forever. They'll be in the new creation. So how did that happen? Well, Theologically, we know nobody comes to that place of faith. We're going to talk about this next next time. Nobody comes to that place of faith but by a radical work of renewal by the Holy Spirit. Because natural man is dead in sin. We hear about that in Ephesians 2. So I, would, I can't imagine saying he didn't regenerate individuals to bring them to a place of faith. So I think uh, some have said, some have tried to say basically he was with them in all the same ways he's with us now. Some have tried to say he wasn't there at all, kind of. Um, and on individuals, I think I would say he was regenerating and somehow in a corporate sense with, among, but not in. Um, do you know if that's what, I think James Hamilton, is that where he concludes? So. Yeah, um, so there's a, a, a book he has on this topic where I think that's kind of where he lands. Seems like a sensible, I don't know, do you have other thoughts on it or different opinion? <laughs> yeah, or any other thoughts on that question? You have to sort of apply later categories to earlier, which can be kind of tricky. But the fact is, I mean, we need the Spirit to give us new life if we're going to have faith. Yeah, man. Is the, um, in the Old Testament, is there any example, or is the Holy Spirit one one at a time in it with people uh, as far as indwelling them? Mm-hmm. Is, there any other, is there any examples of him indwelling more than one person at the same time? Like a Pentecost situation yeah. of him and Dwight? No. Um, it's only after Pentecost that's happened. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the development of Pentecost is is the everybody thing. I don't know. If, I mean, there may be like multiple prophets who have the spirit of... I mean, there are definitely multiple prophets that prophesy like at the same time, but mm-hmm. um, the idea of a group, the whole group being... Well, there's a little foretaste. There's an event in Numbers 11 you can read about where several leaders get the spirit at once and they start prophesying. And, uh, and, and some of Moses' deputies are like, oh no, like other people have the spirit too, not just you, you know? 
And Moses is like, great, I wish everyone had the Holy Spirit, which is an interesting precursor to Joel's prophecy, saying, oh, one day that will happen. Moses' wish will come true, and everyone in the covenant community will have the Holy Spirit. So there is that. There's this sort of moment where several people like, prophesy at once. Yeah. Saul, or when, when the Saul was among the prophets, where when he was prophesying, so there's other people kind of. Yeah, there's group. There's like yeah, there seems to be a, a sort of a posse of prophets out kind of, and you don't know what they're saying. That's sort of like what are they talking? What are they doing? They're just going around speaking for God. But again, we talked about not every inspired word was inscripturated. That was a, a separate thing. That not everything that was spoken by God through prophets in those days needed to be kept as a permanent witness for His people for all time. But yeah, that, that would be in that category. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer. If you want to interact more fully about questions or anything, I'm glad to do so um, outside of class. But we'll pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that Jesus has won for us and poured out from heaven the spoils of his victory. And we thank you that you have come so near, not, to, not just to be with us, but to be in us by your life-giving spirit. We pray that you would help us to, to grow in gratitude and just adoration of your saving and sanctifying grace in us and the assurance that your spirit gives by his very presence in us and may um, may our lives more and more be conformed to uh, the life of Christ, which is true, true life um, from our old ways of sin and death. We thank you for this time we could study these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.